It is a blessing to have each of you with us. It's always a blessing to be able to be with you, but I especially enjoy being able to participate in communion, which is something that we will do a little bit later in the service this morning. It is such a great reminder of where our hope comes from. Well, today I want to conclude the series that we've been working through for the past seven weeks. It's kind of a longer series, but that being said, it has been a a joy for me as we've been able to look at the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. The closing statement in each of those letters has been the same every week. Anyone who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The idea within this statement is that the truth given to these churches should be able to apply to each of us as well. If you have ears, even if you're not from the church of Smyrna or Philadelphia or Thyatira or Ephesus or wherever it may be, then you ought to listen up. I have a friend who often points out that some people have to learn for themselves while others can learn from the mistakes of others. He reflects on the fact that if he sees a wet paint sign, he's the kind of guy that has to reach out and touch that wet paint to see if it's really wet or not. He said it's not so bad when you're dealing with paint, but for a long time, he's done the same with hot stoves, and that is far more painful. The idea is that we can and we should learn from these other churches and the decisions that they made. We don't have to make the same mistakes that others have made. Well, today's letter is found in Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 22. It is perhaps the most preached about letter by modern day preachers. I know that I have personally preached on it several times before. And it is addressing the church of Laodicea. And maybe it's just me, but I've often perceived them as being a pretty good church, just lukewarm and not fully devoted to the Lord. But it's worth noting before we even read the passage this morning, that this is the only church out of the seven letters listed in Revelation. This is the only church that does not receive any commendation. It's almost as if there is nothing really good worth talking about. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. Let me give you a little background information that might be beneficial to you before we read today. First of all, they were a very prosperous city. They're located about 10 miles from another major city known as Colossae. Many of you are familiar with the letter to the Colossian church That was 10 miles away, but they were also sort of right in the middle of Ephesus on one side and Western Asia Minor Minor on the other. And between the north and the south points of Pergamum and Sardis, so what you have is one city that is centrally located to four major points, which should tell you that there was a lot of trade that came through that city. Laodicea was also known for its courts that had heard many legal cases throughout the region, and the use of this city's banks for depositing significant imperial economic funding was very common. History records a number of earthquakes that hit cities throughout Asia Minor, specifically in AD 17 and again in AD 60. Well, Laodicea is noted as having refused financial help from the Roman Empire, 
repairing all of their extensive damage by means of their own resources. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. From a Roman standpoint, this city was to be admired, a model for all other cities. Be responsible, take care of yourself. And then for those who were in Laodicea, there was likely a sense of pride that oozed out of them because they didn't need the help of others like other cities needed. And of course, all of that will show up in our passage today, and it'll help us understand what we read. Listen to the passage beginning in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as we begin, Jesus is defined in this passage as the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I will begin by saying I can't think of a more perfect description for Jesus here. Though others may let us down, he is faithful. And this description as one who is the true witness is incredibly important. I remember watching a car accident many years ago take place, and it was my responsibility to share what I saw, but my information was imperfect. Doesn't mean that it was incorrect, it was just imperfect, and that's because I could only see one part of what was taking place. It only makes sense that as God can see all of creation, that he would be a more perfect witness. He is all-knowing, and I am not. Of course, he's also defined as the ruler of God's creation. Remember back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, he declares that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word that is spoken of in that passage is Jesus Christ. And as the one who was intricately involved in the act of creation, the one who died to redeem creation, and the one who is over everything and knows creation better than we even know it ourselves. It only makes sense that he would be the one who is fit to rule and judge over creation. So I mentioned it earlier, but as this church is addressed, there's very little in the way of pleasantries. If you look closely, he doesn't begin with a few words of encouragement. He doesn't commend them on the good that has come out of them. He simply gets right down to business. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. 
they probably feel pretty good about themselves. It's the seventh letter to the seven churches, and these letters would have been passed around from church to church. And it's possible that they may have even read some or all of the other letters before they ever get to their own, because there's the last one. They're probably expecting, oh, I wonder what he's going to say about us. This is so exciting. He's got all these good things to say. Oh, there might be a few things that need correction, but I wonder what he's going to say about us. They seem very successful. They feel good about themselves. Pride oozes from their pores. Yet Christ sees nothing worthy of celebration. They're neither cold nor hot. And he says that he is about to spit them out of his mouth. Now, I've said this before, but I actually like the King James Version just a little bit more on this particular passage. As it says that he's not about to spit you out of his mouth, but rather he is about to spew you out of his mouth. Doesn't that just sound a little more disgusting to you? The original Greek translation would have fit more closely with the word vomit rather than spit. But there's more to this analogy. Something that is specifically relevant to the original audience. You see, Laodicea was located six miles away from some hot springs with health-inducing mineral deposits. In fact, the steam from those hot springs would have often been visible to those in Laodicea. And then just 10 miles away in the other direction, we mentioned Colossae earlier, there was an ever-bubbling stream of clear, cold water for its drinking supply. Laodicea's water was neither. It stunk. Its stagnant warmth caused an immediate revulsion. In other words, it was disgusting. This lukewarm quality of this church is in direct contrast to the one who is faithful and a true witness. And a part of what intrigues me is the fact that this faithful and true witness says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but instead you were lukewarm. It's understandable that God would wish for us to be hot when we're in a lukewarm state. But he says, I would prefer you be hot or cold. That means that lukewarm is actually worse than being cold. Maybe that's because the lukewarm life gives the inaccurate appearance of health and strength, and it leads the church to become a stumbling block to the watching world. Or maybe it's because when we're in that lukewarm state, we feel like we're good enough already, and we don't need to go any further. At least when you're cold, you know you're cold. You know that something isn't right. Such lukewarm living is apparently disgusting to the Lord. Therefore, he says he is about to spew them or to vomit them out of his mouth. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, I had a youth sponsor who had an amazing gift. He could slowly spit, allowing the spit to hang from his mouth. And I'm telling you, I, there were times he could get it close to where it was almost on the floor, and then he could suddenly suck it back up. I know, sounds really, really disgusting. But as a young 20-something-year-old, man, you're impressed. Like, that is awesome. It's incredible. Well, one day, he was playfully torturing his wife. And with her shoulders pinned down, 
he allowed his spit to hang over her face, only to suck it back up twice. But the third time, as the spit hung from his mouth and her mouth wide open, screaming, the spit dropped. <laughs> Rusty would share with me later on that he was never allowed to play that game with his wife again. Well, that's the disgusting image that comes to my mind when I hear the word spew. God is about to spew the lukewarm Christian out of his mouth. Well, the lukewarm character of this church is described in pretty good detail for us. They view themselves as self-sufficient. They're rich, healthy, well-clothed. They don't really need anything. Since they no longer have to fight and scrape for their sustenance, they have lulled themselves into what I would call a mediocre existence. Yet the Lord always knows better. He describes them as wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, it's important for us to note that God always knows us better than we even know ourselves. I wonder if I'm the only one who has ever convinced myself that I'm in a good place with God simply because I seem better off than other people. I wonder if I'm the only one who has ever thought that if others would just see things the way I do, then the church and the world would be a better place. I'm going to guess that I'm not the only one to think that way. But of course, there's both an individual application to this as well as a corporate application. The individual, I hope I'm wrong, but I think the majority of us this is going to sound terrible. Listen to me. I think the majority of us have already settled for lukewarm or average. And before you get defensive, just listen. Think for a moment about what you want to be great at. Maybe you want to be a great athlete. Maybe you want to be a great musician, a great student, a great parent or a great business owner. Maybe you want to be a great follower of Jesus Christ. What are you willing to do to achieve that greatness? I've talked with a couple of music teachers who reflect on their students who put as little time and effort as possible into practice. Yet then they expect to become great musicians. It just doesn't work that way. If you want to be more than average, then you need to be devoted to the process. So what are you willing to do in order to make sure that you are not average in following Jesus? Do you read and study the word of God on a daily basis? Is church a priority for you? Are you daily praying for God to reveal himself to you. We are told multiple times throughout the scriptures that if we seek the Lord with all of our heart, that we will find him. Are you genuinely seeking him every day? Are you actively looking for opportunities to be used by God? See, we can say, I'm not settled for the lukewarm, complacent, average Christian life. But if we're not willing to back that up with action, 
Well, something's wrong with what we said. You see, far too many in the body of Christ have become content because we're doing better than other people. And we may claim to want more, but the truth is, if you really want more, do more. Dig deeper. Find out what the Lord wants for you. What are you doing in order to be more than average as a follower of Jesus Christ? Average will always be attainable, but greatness will require effort. And to be clear, I'm not saying that your salvation is somehow granted to you by your good works. What I'm saying is that now that you have been redeemed by God's grace, we ought to pour ourselves into being all that God intends for us to be. I told you that there is also a corporate application to this, and it's not lost on me as the pastor. I read this week that in-person church attendance is down on average between 30 and 50% from the beginning of COVID. And then I look at our church that is growing by leaps and bounds. Last Sunday, we had the highest attendance that this church has had on a Sunday that didn't include a Christmas program or Easter Sunday. It's great. First thing I thought is that we're doing pretty good. Perhaps because we're better than others. But God didn't call us to just be better than others. I was asked this week by someone outside the church, how is your church doing? And I began to answer and I suddenly felt convicted. While we are doing well, we are not doing well enough. There are still thousands of people in our community that do not yet know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And even among those who are in the church, God is calling us into a deeper relationship with him. We need to continue to do a better job at making disciples. I don't want to be content with just being better than others. I want us to be a church that best reflects the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. Average is not good enough. But note that complacency or lukewarm living is also not a death sentence. This is for the church and this is for the individual. There is a solution. And that solution is Jesus Christ. The Lord is able to fix that which is broken. In our pa passage, he counsels us to buy from him gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover up your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. There are a couple of important points with this resolution. On the one hand, there is only one place to turn to fix this problem of complacency, and that is Jesus Christ. He doesn't give us options as to other places where we can go to buy these things. Have you ever seen those products advertised on television? And at the end of the commercial, it will list all the stores that you can go to where you will find that item. Well, there's only one place to find this item. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me. Talking about himself. The point is to say that only Jesus can fix us in our complacency. But the other point that I'll make is that Jesus offers us something that is purer and more beautiful than we could ever attain on our own. 
He offers a gold that has been refined in the fire. And many may not like the refining process, but it is worth it in the end. He offers us white clothes to wear, signifying a purity that is greater than we could ever attain. And he gives us a salve so that we can see better than ever. If you really want the best, then you need to go to the best source, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus then adds that the purpose of all of this, and it fits so well, I told you last week, I'm not smart enough to put things in the right order. This is about love. And what Jesus is doing here is he is declaring how much he loves them. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. What he is saying here is that I love you way too much to allow you to remain on this path. He is like the parent. He is like the parent who longs to reward his children. Yet he knows that there are times that he must rebuke his child. Not because that's what he wants to do, but for their own good. So he calls them to be earnest and to repent. The final point today is seen in the promised reward. In a manner, it's an invitation to join the Lord. First for a shared meal, and then to join him on his throne. I'm going to look at those two rewards in reverse order this morning. Verse 21 is perhaps my favorite verse in all of scripture. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. This promised reward is all about intimacy. Can you picture it? Jesus sitting on a throne, and as he sits on the throne, he pats his leg, he says, come on up here, have a seat. And he invites you to intimacy with him. Sitting on the lap of Jesus, I cannot think of a greater prize for any of us. Verse 20 is one of those verses that we've heard so often in sermons. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I remember the church that I grew up in had a painting in our foyer with Jesus knocking on the door. And this verse underneath it. But what do we make of the meal that he invites us to? Jesus told parables in Matthew 22 and Luke 14 that talked of a great wedding feast. And often Jesus spoke of eating and drinking in heaven. In just a few moments, we will participate in a celebration of the Lord's Supper, also known as communion. Some churches that use a little more liturgy and formality have scripted this celebration of communion. One of those is the United Methodist Church. I'll tell you already, I don't agree with the United Methodist Church on a lot of stuff, but I like their liturgy around communion. This is what their script says in that. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. 
As we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, as prescribed by Jesus at the Last Supper, I challenge you to allow this ritual to serve not only as a reminder of what Christ has already done, his bodily sacrifice, him allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be shed so that we could be forgiven of our sins, not only to remember back to where this originated, but also allow today's act to serve as a rehearsal for what is still to come. You see, the reality is we will all be invited to a great banquet feast, and we will sit down and we will enjoy the presence of God. I picture the 12 disciples at the Last Supper as they gathered and they sat on the floor and they leaned up against each other and they ate with Jesus. There's going to be a whole lot more than 12 people gathered around Jesus that time, when that day comes. It's going to be a great celebration, and all those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ will be able to participate, and God himself will be there. He will break bread, and we will eat in his presence. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer at this time. And my challenge to you is that First of all, if you are lukewarm, if you have lost your passion to know him more, if you think that you've gone far enough in your walk with Christ because you may be further along than others, then it's time to earn, be earnest and repent. There's no room for average. There's no room for lukewarm Christian living. In fact, it is disgusting to the Lord. We must be all in so that when the time comes to that great banquet feast, we'll be ready. Father, we come before you right now, and we are so grateful for your grace. We're grateful for the sacrifice that was given. We just talked about it. We're so grateful to know that you loved us so much that you would allow your son's body to be broken and his blood to be shed simply so that our sins could be forgiven. Lord, we are thankful for where this ritual originated. You told us every time we do this, we're supposed to do it in remembrance of you. And Lord, we are doing that today. Lord, I pray that if there be one of us that has taken your sacrifice for granted, that right now we would develop a new perspective on what you've called us to. If we've been content with average, Lord, I pray right now that you would take that away. Lord, I pray that you would give us such a hunger for you that nothing else would satisfy. Lord, if we've not spent time in your word, Lord, give us a desire to be in there, to know what you have for us. If we've not spent time regularly in prayer, Lord, I pray that there would be such a fulfillment that would come out of our prayer time, that we would long for that prayer time, that there would be nothing else that could bring us more joy than to be with you in your presence. The same even with being in church. Lord, I pray that this would become a priority for us. Father, I pray that whatever it takes for us to become more like you, to know you better than we even know ourselves, to not be lukewarm, but rather to be completely on fire for you, whatever that looks like, Lord, make us that kind of people. Father, forgive us where we have settled for less than your best. 
as we prepare for this act of communion. Oh, we recognize that we're just taking ordinary elements of bread and grape juice. But in this moment, they represent something far greater and far more beautiful. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice. There's nothing that we could do to say that somehow we deserve what you did. There's nothing that we could say or do that says that you deserved what you did. But Lord, we benefit from it. Lord, I pray that even right now, we would be able to reflect on what that sacrifice has meant to us. How are we different today because of what you did? Some of us, our lives are dominated by horrible, ugly sins that if other people even knew about it, we would be ashamed. But you have brought forgiveness and grace. You've given us the opportunity to be transformed so that that no longer describes us. We're not the same people we once were. And man, we have a great hope. And it's all because of what you've done. Lord, help us today as we reflect on your sacrifice to recognize what it means to us. Lord, if there be one here that isn't right with you, Lord, may today in this moment, may they be made right with you. So as they participate in eating these elements, Lord, that this would be a new day, a celebration of the work that you've done in them. Let this be kind of the kickoff moment for them. Lord, let this be the moment that they say, Lord, I am fully yours. And I'm not satisfied with mediocre, average, lukewarm Christianity anymore. I'm all in. Let that be each of us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this time, I'm going to ask some individuals to come forward. I've talked to the staff already, and they're going to come and help us by serving communion. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to open this up to everyone to come. Anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is invited to participate in the act of communion. Uh, we use bread and grape juice. I know some places will use wine. We use grape juice. And it really doesn't matter what those elements are. We use bread because that was what Jesus used. And we use grape juice because it's just unfermented, the same thing that Jesus used. But really what they represent is what matters. The bread represents the body of Jesus that is broken for you and for me. And we rejoice over the fact that Jesus would allow his body to be broken. Even as he hung on the cross, there were those who hurled insults at him. Those who said, if he really is God, let him call down 10,000 angels. And the reality is Jesus could have done that at any moment in time. But instead, he willingly allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed so that our sins could be forgiven. That's what this act is about. He tells us we are to remember it. You've heard me say it if you've been in this church service before. This is not just something that we remember when the church has a special service and we serve communion. He said, every time you do this, every time you eat this, every time you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. When you go to eat lunch today, I challenge you. Let that be an opportunity to say, Lord, thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for me. When you go to eat tomorrow, 
when you gather to watch a Super Bowl or whatever it is, and by the way, I thought Jerry gave really good advice. The halftime show is not worth watching. <laughs> It's a separate issue here, but it's not worth watching. We're actually going to worship as a part of it, which will be far better. But when you gather to eat, let that be an opportunity to remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for you, your sins forgiven because of his sacrifice. Let me pray one last time as these individuals come forward to help serve. Father, as we come before you, Lord, again, we're grateful for the body that's broken and the blood that's shed. We know that these elements, they're ordinary. But today, in this moment, we ask that you would make them extraordinary as they represent something far greater. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to recognize what it truly means. Your sacrifice and your grace extended to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We invite you to come as you feel led to come. Uh, easier if you come out the right, my right side, your left side, and then go back so everybody goes the same way.
Anyone else who is unable to come forward that needs to receive the elements of communion? It is always a blessing to be able to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And sometimes I think we kind of go through the ritual of this and we don't really think about what it means. But this is an incredible love story. I know this week is Valentine's Day and some of you husbands are thinking, oh, it's this week? Um, this is the greatest love story that will ever be told. What Jesus did for you and for me. Husbands, according to... Paul's teaching are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. Well, do you know how Christ loved the church? He loved the church so much that he willingly gave up his own life so that they could have life. That is the call of God. That is the love of God on full display. As we partake in these elements, this bread represents the body of Jesus. As Jesus met with his disciples, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Every time you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. He then took the wine and he said, this is my blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That is not just a New Testament principle. That's the way it had always been. He said, this is my blood that is shed for you. Every time you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Father, once more, we come before you grateful for the love and the grace that you have extended to us. We cannot say thank you enough, but I pray that our lives would express our appreciation. Help us to live in such a way that says, Lord, we are so grateful for your love extended to us. And we'll give you praise for what you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, if you have cups with you, which most of you should, you can actually leave them in your pews. If you're standing up out there, there's actually a trash can right out here as you walk out. You're welcome to put it in there or find a pew where you can stack them in there. We'll come back and we'll clean it up afterwards. Thank you so much for being a part of our worship service this morning. And we'd love to see you back next week as well. Go in peace.